Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Life is full of awesome what ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust proof stainless steel hardware, weather ready teak, and quick dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com/acast and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com/acast. Greetings, comrades, and welcome to the Eastern Border. Yay, it's another long-form episode again. You see, our show started out as a people's history channel about the Soviet Union. I brought human perspectives about how it was like to live there and what was going on there. And these perspectives are still very important to me. So, following all this war situation, I would like to bring you two views on this war, which are fascinating each on their own, but uh, when you look at them together, then the situation becomes quite revealing about the whole attitude about the war inside Russia and how... Different people take a look at it. This definitely couldn't go into any news episodes, because this is, well, way more philosophical. It is informative, though, but this is just something for which these episodes are made for. First view comes from a young Russian contractor, who posted his experience of one month of war in Ukraine on his blog. Huge thanks to Dmitry, at mdmitry91 on Twitter, for his translations. It makes my life literally less painful because of my arm. And... Uh, yeah, for now, he's translated two out of five parts, and I think, well, when the final three come out, we'll give it a whole, you know, continuation of everything. But um, here's what the young Russian contractor who serves in the field has to say. My name is Viktor. On day 12 of the special military operation in Ukraine, and then brackets, my opinion is that, in essence, it's a huge, bloody, large-scale war. Yes, officially the war has not been declared, but in reality, the generally accepted meaning of this war, it's a real war brackets close. After seeing for the first time on YouTube a video of our Russian captives and wounded being abused by these inhumans from Ukrainian armed forces, I made a decision to join the army as a contractor to help our army in this war. Because, yeah, comment from me, obviously there have been some cases of mistreatment by Ukrainian soldiers of their captured Russians, but these things are getting investigated. It is a war, and, you know, at least it's getting investigated, but I don't really, really hope that... Uh, anyone is going to go out of this war with their hands completely clean. Continuing. I myself grew up, and I'm registered in Belgorod Oblast. I applied for a contract at the regional selection point in, in the Oblast. I passed the full medical commission. On April the 3rd, I arrived at the 3rd Motorized Rifle Vislyansky Red Banner Division, orders of Suvorov and Kutuzov, into the 752nd Motorized Regiment, Unit 34670, to a position of a rifleman assistant grenade launcher. I signed a contract for half a year. Before that, I had served my conscription service in Dzerzhinsky Ministry of Internal Affairs Division, in a separate commandant battalion. During the conscription service, I've been to shooting practices four times, where each time I fired six rounds. 
Since school, when in the 10th grade we went to the military training camps for two weeks, I was amazed, perplexed, and surprised. Why is it so? Why are we only allowed to fire six rounds? Indeed, in order to feel the assault rifle, you need at least 15 rounds in a magazine. So the person could shoot two or four single rounds and then try bursts of four or five rounds. Yet to do it properly, of course, everyone needs a whole magazine, 30 rounds. My opinion is that the target shooting with six rounds, which is en masse used in the Russia's army, and, well, our previous service is just a mockery of military training. In the order by the commander of the Western Military District regarding sending me into a unit, it was indicated that I was meant to be sent to accelerated survival training courses. They were meant to last two weeks. Also, my contract selection instructor at the regional selection point was saying they would teach me up a little bit, teach how to fire from everything, from a grenade launcher, machine gun, sniper rifle. In reality, this all turned out to be a lie. None of us, 22 people, were taught anything. We were not even allowed to try our weapons. On April the 6th, we were already meant to be sent to Ukraine, to Izium Town, but the dispatch was delayed twice, and in the end, we left Ukraine in the morning of April the 9th. Regarding my military preparation, I knew that it was best, in my opinion, to fire from an assault rifle with single rounds, but I couldn't even remember how to set single or burst fire mode, the lower position of the latch or the higher. So when I received my assault rifle in the afternoon of April 6th, being shortened on the 7th, we could already end up in Ukraine, I asked the duty officer who was issuing assault rifles to us, where's the single fire mode? This is the training that I've had. I also took two offensive grenades. I took the offensive ones since I knew such grenades is the safest to use. The fragments only scatter for about 25 meters. I knew about this since my conscription service in the army. I never threw a grenade, so I asked those who did how to use it the right way. How to twist out of the fuse, how to bend the antennae, and how to pull out the pen. We've had people with combat experience who fought in the Second Chechen War, but also those who simply were combat veterans and served in a contract, or simply those who served on a contract before. These people obviously were ten times more prepared than I was. Looking ahead, I will say that during mortar or artillery shelling, your training level is not important. You can be a professional spetsnaz with 20 years of experience and die instantly from mortar fire. And you can be an inexperienced novice and survive in dozens and hundreds of artillery barrages. This is a matter of luck, how God decides. The only thing, if you are being shelled with grad or cannon artillery, if you see a fresh crater that just appeared, it's better to jump into it, as the missile shouldn't hit it the second time. Our equipment was not the best. We were not given sleeping bags or ammo pouches. Upon arriving on April the 9th to a livestock farm located not far north of Izium, we slept there overnight. At night, a precision mortar attack, two bombs, hit the BTR belonging to a logistics company which was based on this farm. The BTR was struck. That's how I first learned what a bomb is. It was scary and generally unsettling. In the morning, a regiment Zampolit, uh, basically that's the guy who was responsible for the political accuracy, kind of like commissars, but it's kind of weird. He said we are going to Satan's ass, so those who want can refuse right here at the farm, since later we, he won't be taking anyone back if someone wanted to return. One man ref refused, Praporshik, and uh, that's a military level, a bit above sergeant, Vasily from Moscow. Everyone else went. It should be noted that we were all put into infantry, despite the fact that two were meant to be in reconnaissance. One of them was a sergeant, an observation method specialist for various sensors and cameras. There was also a senior Praporshik, 43 years old Vladimir, who was supposed to be a starshin, a little officer, kind of overview position, of some sort of semi-rear company. Yet everyone was showed in to be riflemen and machine gunners, and also grenade launchers at the front line and motorized companies. 
Thus on April the 10th, myself and four more people ended up in the 1st Company of the 752nd Regiment, located on the defense in shrubbery at altitude 200 to the south of Kamenk village. Commanding the company was Senior Lieutenant Guzayev, a real officer and a very good person, kind and humane. In the company, if it can be called the company, there were eight people together with company Starshin who never went into assaults. After we joined, the company consisted of 13 people. We specifically were not shelled. Ukrainian bombs and grads flew into our artillery, which was positioned one kilometer away from us. They also hit the second company, which was bigger than ours, and more combat ready. It located to the left, also in the shrubbery around 300 meters away from us. They often fired at Ukrainian drones from assault rifles and certainly took down two. Our company commander forbid us from firing at the drones, saying that we won't be able to take them down anyway, and would only expose ourselves. In my opinion, of course we could be taking them down with small arms. Although, obviously, the likelihood was very small. We spent a week in this shrubbery. Overall, we got to know each other. We got comfortable with each other. There was already mutual assistance and respect. Once, I even fired single rounds at another shrub, which stood perpendicularly to us. A week prior to that, positions of our company were attacked through the shrubbery. We, contractors volunteers, were not there yet at that point. By a Ukrainian assault company, around 100-120 people. They were utterly defeated. As I understand, one part retreated and took with them almost all wounded. Around 40-50 dead bodies remained in that forest. Only one was wounded in the barrack. He was delivered to division headquarters. No one abused or beat him. A week later, Ukrainian reconnaissance carefully entered the shrubbery during the day. Perhaps to get something from the dead. Radios, documents, tags, or perhaps just observe and make sure. I don't know. But the second company noticed the movement and immediately prepared for firing. The guy next to me said he could see two people in the shrub. I clarified with him the place where he saw them and immediately started firing with single rounds into that spot, and then generally just firing at the shrub. I fired around 14 rounds. Looking ahead, I'll say this was my only use of weapons in almost a month of stay in Ukraine. On 18th of April, we left the forest and went to Kamenka. The next day, an attack of Dolgenkoye village was planned. They didn't let us properly sleep and rest, since late at night we moved closer towards the attack location. We slipped over and destroyed school. Thank God I got enough sleep, paradoxical it may seem. In the morning in Brazovka village our company received 13 more volunteers. They just arrived from Russia. To be honest, I was stunned by this. How is it possible? The, the people are immediately sent into attack. One moment was indicative. Our Starshin, who never went into attacks himself, gave one of the PKM machine guns to one guy. I asked the guy, did a round go into the barrel? I personally didn't know how to insert the machine gun belt in. I just knew how to take it off safety and shoot. The guy said he had no idea, and that they told him in his unit, in Valyuki, that he would be a driver. I called our Starshina. He tried to send a round into the barrel, but failed. The machine gun jammed. Then our senior Praporoschik came, who fought in Chechnya. It took him two minutes to load the machine gun. He did it. That's how this attack was prepared. However, as it turned out, it was not an attack on Dolgoyenkoye. Either the plans had changed, or the officers made a mistake, but we simply went on a path along the fields and shrubbery, towards Sugilovka village, which was around 2.5 kilometers from Bozhinki, and by now was under our control for six days. However, we didn't know that. We kept thinking we were going to attack Dolgenkoye, and that we needed to take the first street in this village. As we walked, Ukrainian army noticed us and started shelling us from grads and mortars. During the second rather massive shelling, I already said goodbye to my life. I thought that was it, that the next bomb will either rip my legs off or kill me instantly. It was really scary. That fella who was given machine gun, he was 38 years old and not really used to physical activity. 
He was very exhausted from marching and running around with a machine gun, an assault rifle and an armored vest, and his heart started aching. We reported about this to our commander. He told me to stay with the guy and to cover the retreat of the wounded from companies that were ahead of us. We moved back a bit, waited for the wounded. There were four of them, lightly wounded. Someone in the hand. Other had a shrapnel either in his back, through an armored vest. Another had a light leg injury. Everyone walked on their own. The wounded moved on, but we stayed for another 40 minutes. We have heard how our guys got shelled with grads once more. Then me and this fella, we went down to Brozovka village. I was carrying a machine gun. After staying there for three hours, I went with someone on someone's BTR to Sugilovka. The other guy also went there on the second company's BTR. They didn't know back then it was Sugilovka, and I believed I was going to Dolenkoye, which we were meant to capture. In Sugilovka, I found that company. In the afternoon, the commander told us we did not accomplish our objective, and that the next morning we have to go and assault Dolenkoye. Many company commanders in the two battalions of the 752nd Regiment told their fighters that we are being sent to a short death, since the Ukrainians are well prepared. So they said, decide for yourself if you want to go or not. Four-fifths of us, if not more, refused to go. So did I. In many ways, because I simply had no physical energy to keep going into an assault. Yet, many volunteers from other companies went into that attack in the morning. From our company, three people went, including the senior lieutenant. He got wounded in his leg. As those who later came back from the assault were telling us, it was seven kilometers of walking through the fields between Sugilovka and Doglikoye. They left at 10 a.m. and only by 4 p.m. managed to reach 600 meters from the village. They were exhausted. All this time, they marched under heavy mortar and artillery shelling. Dead and wounded started appearing. When we reported to our battalion commander, Major Vashura, about the dead and wounded, he cussed. Leave them and keep advancing. They said that reconnaissance squad commander, who was moving together with our incomplete companies, got wounded. He himself told his scouts to keep going forward and support the attack and to pick him up later. He appointed another senior to them. After all, they picked him up. When they almost reached Dolgenkoye, the mortar shelling became very intense. Ukrainian tanks started firing. This resulted in even more dead and wounded. The officers, who were alive and not wounded, did not know what to do. Then, one of the volunteers... He told me that in person he was 40 years old, and for 12 years prior he served in the contract, including in GRU, a combat veteran. He said, Guys, we need to fall back. Otherwise we will be smashed with mortars, and those who stay alive will be finished off. So they retreated. Everyone was exhausted. It was very difficult, carrying the wounded. We came back at 11pm. One of the volunteers, Andrei from Kursk, said that many simply ran off while retreating. He yelled at them to help pull out the wounded, but they didn't help. He said he wanted to grab an assault rifle and start shooting in their backs. Thus, the grenade launcher platoon commander, Captain Nikolaev, who was dragged for four hours, died from blood loss. I didn't know him personally, but everyone said he was a very good person. So that was an attack on Dolgenkoye on the 20th of April. After this attack, almost everyone refused to go into another attack the following day. Only a part, 11 people from the remnants of two battalions, stayed and were sent to the very front line into Shrubbery, half a kilometer away from Sugilovka, to help motorized riflemen from Sakhalin, who uh, held the fence there. It's important to note that, in principle, many of those who refused to attack, myself included, were ready to hold the fence under mortar fire, yet we were still told to walk with our own to Izium. In fact, they took away our weapons. They took away our weapons at the very front line. I'll also add that due to constant lies, we couldn't believe our command anymore. Twice before the attacks, we were told that everything was going to be alright, that the enemy artillery was suppressed, 
that ahead of us other units of ours were already advancing and we just needed to reach them. But each time this turned out to be a lie and ended up with senseless losses for us. We kept wondering, why are we being sent into these insane assaults? We thought perhaps it was to locate the enemy artillery while it was shelling us, or for the Ukrainians to use up their shell stocks on us. Then we wondered if it was to distract the attention of the Ukrainian army. I did not know. Many had a feeling that we were just deliberately being destroyed. Looking ahead, I'll say that, based on the fact that different units tried to take Dolgenkoye, I think that our command simply had the task of taking it and simply sent in everyone that they could. It got to a point where in early May they started sending only seven people to attack. As I understood, other units went to assault Dolgenkoye one or two times before stopping. I think on 1st of May, Omon and other special forces, possibly Sober, went there also. They also failed to take it. They just simply walked around another area with the remnants of our regiment. It's just that in other units, the command took care of the subordinates, while our leadership, as I understood, didn't care about us. The 45th Reconnaissance Regiment of the Airborne Forces tried to advance through the forest to Dolgenkoye on April 19th as we were going to Sugilovka. They didn't make it. There was an intense firefight in the forest to the right of us. We heard it very well. Airborne had one person killed, retreated and refused to advance on Dolgenkoye. In Sugilovka, I stayed for three days. Then me and another guy from my company... He previously served in Vityaz Spetsnaz on a contract, and a guy from another company together left to Izium on a truck. There, we ended up in one location on the outskirts of Izium, where all the so-called 500s, those who refused, were being gathered. I got there around the 25th of April. We were basically used as a workforce. We dug trenches, carried earth bags to reinforce division headquarters, sawed pines for dugouts. Nearly every day, they were bringing new refusers to us. Their stories were even more tragic than ours. New volunteers were immediately thrown onto Dolgenkoye upon arrival to Ukraine. There were no more officers, so they were picking the most hardened ones among the volunteers, ones who fought in Chechnya and Syria. Appointed them as seniors, gave them radios, and sent them to assault. At the end of April, they brought to us another 18 people who advanced as a large group of 120. They said that, apart from them, some other units attacked Dolgenkoye from another direction. Perhaps that is why they reached Dolgenkoye without any mortar shelling. They had 300 400 meters to go but they came under crossfire from two machine guns. Even closer to them were positions of Ukrainian assault riflemen. They started combat. Our guys also had machine guns and RPGs. As I understood, they killed at least six assault regiment, but had to retreat due to Ukrainian machine guns, which they couldn't suppress. Most likely the machine guns were located in well-fortified positions. The guys said that if they had a little help, if the machine guns were suppressed with helicopters and tanks, they would have entered the Dginkoye. When I was still in Sugilovka and we went into attacks, they said that motorized riflemen from Klintsi entered Dolgenkoye as one full company on BTRs, but it is said they were sent deliberately as they were fired at from three directions. Yet they still withdrew on their own from the triangular ambush on Dolgenkoye. They said it was even before we came, before 19th of April, that eight tanks and infantry entered Dolgenkoye but decided to keep going rather than taking positions. So the tankmen went forward and almost all of them got hit, and then the infantry was also pushed out. In May, they brought the remnants of Bars, trained reservists from all of Russia, 14 people. They assaulted Dolgenkoye for a month and remained in the area. As I understand it, they were attached to the leadership of our wicked division. In total, 340 of them arrived to Ukraine. After a month of shelling, only 57 remained. Moreover, half of the survivors were at the headquarters. Most of them were wounded. They never had a single firefight. All the losses came from Ukrainian artillery fire. My opinion is that if it wasn't for the Ukrainian artillery, its power and precision, that our folks would have crushed the Ukrainian army in the firefights. It is my opinion. 
As for us volunteers, in my opinion we were generally combat ready and could attack quite well, as far as our skills and knowledge allowed. It's just after such disgusting and vile attitude from our leadership, many didn't want to stay and fight in this unit, myself included. I can understand command can make mistakes, but when you realize the leadership simply doesn't care about you and you are sent for a sure senseless death, it really discourages you from fighting. Another thing. During this whole time, in the whole division, the officers were receiving state awards. Not a single sergeant or a private received an award. I spoke to five staff contractors from our company. They were very young. 19, 22 years old. Kind and joyful, despite everything. They were taking Kaminka with other units of ours. Of them, eight people entered in their area. They killed 12 Ukrainian fighters in combat. One of the killed was an officer. They found a radio on him. From radio, they found Ukrainians were preparing reinforcements in their area. 40 people were meant to help Ukrainians in coming. Our guys figured out where the Ukrainians would be coming from and ambushed them. They killed all 30 people in combat. These guys are 19, 21 years old. They are excellent at shooting from everything. RPG-7s, Mucha machine guns. They are in many ways still children, but fought to the death. With courage until the end. Why did none of them get any awards? They also refused attacking Dolgenkoi and later left with us to Russia and broke their contract. Ukrainian army continuously shells our positions with mortars, artillery, Tochkyus. I have no idea where Ukraine got so many Tochkyus from. But Tunisium, our anti-aircraft, was taking down many of them every day. That's what they said. In general, speaking of our division, our anti-aircraft is the best working, most combat-ready unit, as I understood. Tankmen had huge losses. Our tanks were hit in dozens during attacks and while marching. Just in general, we have immense vehicle losses, both BTRs and BMPs, trucks, engineering vehicles. But the most terrifying thing is the amount of people dying every day, are made disabled, and oh boy, how many are captured. And these were first two parts out of five in total from the diary of the soldier, Russian soldier here. And it's uh, kind of hard to read through all of the situation. I will be bringing the remaining three parts separately. I am not sure if I'll make another separate episode for this, because this, this really needs to be taken into kind of a, an account there. Probably uh, post the remaining parts, I don't know, either a page, either just on Patreon or, or as an extra. I think I'll think it'll just go as an extra, because, yeah, I probably think you guys want to hear this. But uh, right now, we're to the point where, after all this, we have another, another story from the war. Well, related to the war, that I think you'll be definitely interested in. Hello there, and thanks for listening to another episode of The Eastern Border. Dear Patreons, thank you more than ever for supporting our show. Your donations are crucial to keep us going, and right now all of your money is going to securing good information for you and to fund Kristov's actual real-life mission to Ukraine to report to you live about the war that is going on there. Also, we would like to use this opportunity to urge you to donate to other organizations that are helping people escape Ukraine safely and to defend the country for those who decide to stay on the ground. One such organization we would like to highlight is the Defending Ukraine Together Come Back Alive movement. Launched in 2014, the Come Back Alive became the biggest organization providing support to the armed forces of Ukraine. You can donate directly from their webpage, comebackalive.in.ua. Remember that no donation is too small. In this situation, every dollar matters. Every cent matters. If you're uncomfortable with giving money to war, they do have a position on their website that they are providing Ukrainian army with laptops, lights, photo equipment, cables, and is not purely military. 
Perhaps that might change your mind, but remember you can also donate to strictly humanitarian organizations such as the Red Cross and others that are helping people escape Ukraine safely. Please also keep following us on social media for all of your latest updates on Eastern Border on places like Twitter and Facebook. Keep listening, keep yourself informed. That's all from me now. See you online. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you chiching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Now, like I said, this part is meant to be kind of a compare and contrast with the previous one, really. See, I think this is important to kind of put this whole thing in context, and uh, haven't really done all the diary stuff yet. It's kind of interesting to look at the complete other end of the Russian attitude towards this war, and other people who are tied to this. You see, Dmitry Kozelev, the editor-in-chief of the website Republic, shared some interesting information on Wednesday, May 18th, 2022. He posted several screenshots on Telegram and everywhere, and the thing is that they contain information from a chat group from one of the members who leaked it to to Dmitry Kozelev. And that shows that uh, Vladimir Putin's eldest known daughter, Maria Voronsova, is reportedly active in a Telegram chat group used by the alumni of Moscow State University's medical department, where she sometimes writes about current events. Now, these messages, if authentic, and this comes again from Memberis, offer a rare glance at the political thinking of one of Putin's closest relatives, and this is important because she has access to all of things going on there. And uh, it's kind of interesting to see, you know, the tale of the soldier and the tale of someone in Putin's inner circle about all the situation. But on Sova, allegedly participates in the group under the name Maria V. Both Kolyazov's source in the chat group and a journalist who knows Voronsova's Telegram account confirmed that Maria V is Putin's daughter. When she joined the group last fall, Maria V introduced herself as Maria Voronsova, class of 2011, which coincides with what reporters know about her education. There are roughly 170 people in the chat room, and Kolyazov's source says older members, quote, periodically warn the newcomers if someone gets into a heated argument with Voronsova, end quote. Screenshots of chat exchanges with Putin's daughter, however, indicate that others in the group are not shy about confronting her in various issues. According to the records, Kolyazov obtained, many of Voronsova's comments on political and social issues echo the rhetoric of her father. In many of her messages, she strongly criticizes Western attitudes about Russia, sometimes even alleging diabolical plots by the United States and the European Union. And, uh, I'll quote from the screenshots here. <clears throat> quote, What naivety. That's child's talk. 
Blaming everything and putting all responsibility on one person is the same as putting your faith in one person like a czar. Same crap. If you want to set yourself apart from czarism admirers, well, this ain't the way to do it. Nobody in the West needs our country to be prosperous. They've always done everything possible to ensure this does not happen. And they'll continue to do so. If suddenly, like almost happened in the 90s, Russia becomes a full-fledged raw material appendage of the United States and EU, I'll be interested to see whom you blame for that fact that we are not living in a prosperous economy. Quit playing, honestly. End quote. And uh, here's some more. Quote, But don't you think that in all families these aspects get at least some attention? For my own secondary training, I often have to listen to family stories where the parents don't have enough time or resources to invest in their children, psychological, emotional, intellectual, spiritual, and so on. And where do such kids pick up your mindset about being inseparable from their roots? For example, this group of people is an easy target for techniques to control mass consciousness. The techniques I mentioned are neither new nor a fantasy from dystopian literature. Professional teachers, intelligence services, psychologists, for example, they're well aware of them. End quote. And, um, Again, carrying on from these screenshots, quote. In 2008, the first sanctions started and they threatened that mozzarella would disappear from store shelves. Everybody freaks out. Yikes, how can this be? How will we survive now without Italian mozzarella? And now? Are we still breathing? So it would seem. Now we've even got our own mozzarella. Was any of this possible in the 90s? Oh no. We're not the Germans in the 30s. If anything, we're more like those that they targeted. Morantsov argues in another exchange. So... Yeah, that sort of uh, parrots that whole situation. I mean, if Putin really thinks so, and if his closest circle thinks so, kind of explains where uh, Lavrov got his own hateful comments and all this good stuff. In another comment, Maria Vuss stated that Russia, quote, lost an entire generation of brains and science and medicine, thanks to the tireless efforts of businessman and philanthropist George Soros. Since then, Voronsov explained, Russia has endeavored to ensure the return of those brains and spend decades devoted to economic recovery. Quote, In the 90s, we, Russia, imported grain. It's a disgrace. And now we're one of the world's top exporters. Was it out of the blue as well? Some spell or something, sure. Are there problems here? Yeah, no one denies that. We have more than a few traitors. There's corruption and the bureaucracy is monstrous. But here's a question. Who doesn't have these issues? Voronsov openly asked the group chat. In another exchange, Putin's daughter criticized another chat member for using the word annexation to describe Russia's absorption of Crimea in 2014, insisting that such language overlooks the will of the people. She also has argued that NATO would have established a permanent presence of the peninsula if the alliance ever reached it, and she's repeated the Russian military's totally false claims about supposed United States bioweapons laboratories on Ukrainian territory. Quote, I get that already. Exchanges but the party general lines is the same. In any case, the main governing body in the United States is the Pentagon. Uh, well, I'm pretty sure that those of you who listen to me in, in the Pentagon now had a good, nice little chuckle on this situation. <sighs> because, well, I, I know that you guys are. Hey, this one's for you. This one's also for the FSB guy who listens to the show. Have a, have a nice day, Ivan. I hope you're doing fine. But continue going. For more details, I can ask the experts. But why isn't it the CIA? The CIA controls the Russian mass media and opposition. They don't have time for everything. So the thing is that, um, apparently CIA runs Russian mass media and opposition, but they're, you know, they're too busy doing that, and, um, they can't control everything. That, that's fun. That's fun. I mean, uh, obviously. 
I mean, I'm still waiting for that CIA paycheck. I, I basically wanted uh, wanted a single Bitcoin from them. But um, since Bitcoin has crashed, I'd rather take, you know, PayPal donations instead. If, if CIA would ever fund the show, I would be very happy because we've been accused of it for a long time. That's like the number one thing that, that we got in emails. Because obviously we are 100% CIA funded, said Kristaps while looking at his tiny apartment and when we were, he's doing all this recording in Riga. Yeah. <laughs> I, I wish that CIA money would be coming in, but sa- sadly it isn't. <laughs> it's just always, always funny when someone mentions the CIA because uh, I don't know. I highly doubt that. Uh, I mean, I think they wish they would control this opposition, but really, maybe I don't know enough about CIA. Oh, also high Langley, but um, who knows? Voronsova has also complained the United States never faces international sanctions for the wars Washington initiates, and she endorses the theory that the CIA controls Russia's free press and anti-Kremlin opposition. Quote, What kind of news media live on readers' money after being blocked? She asked in one conversation. According to the published screenshots, however, there is one political issue on which Maria V has declined to comment, the persecution of the LGBTQ community in Chechnya. And I can add for myself, I mean, uh, I'm pretty sure I'm being blocked in Russia, and I still live on, well, money that you guys give to me, so thank you for that. And um, and after, like, uh, this New York Times article, how Ukraine is going to have to give the editorial concessions to Russia, which is all doom and gloom, which I give about as much credibility as the one article that was made by the BBC, which then stated that um, Kiev is going to fall in 96 hours, that age like like milk, basically. Yeah, I, I know that a lot of you guys have unsubscribed from the New York Times. Uh, hey, um, if you want to become our patrons and, and, and give us that money instead for all these news, then uh, we'd be very happy about it. Or you could donate it to charity. That, that's also a great idea. I support both options, because, you know, it all works well together. Still, this is whole paranoia, this is the whole conspiracy theory. Koyazov also shared screenshots showing Voronsov's flippant responses to questions directly about Russia's president. For example, when she was asked, quote, Would you like to talk about Putin's country home? Likely a reference to the president's palace on the Black Sea coast near Genenjik. Maria Vu answered, Sure, let's do it, lol, with a huge lol and three smiley faces next to it. When someone else in the group commented referring to Putin, quote, years of work down the drain because of one person, Putin's daughter replied, quote, because of one person? I wanted to write, how interesting, but I'm not sure it's interesting. In another exchange, she stated, I personally know people who have worked and are working in the state service, working themselves to the bone, and they're doing it for everyone's benefit. I can chime in here, and I also know people who uh, work and have worked in that state service, who don't work themselves to the bone, and they're doing it for their own wallets. So, you know, there are people of both both sorts, I suppose, and um, all that remains is to be asked, which one is there more of in the state service and people who work themselves for everyone's benefit if we take into account the story of the common soldier and how he's been, you know, treated from the first part of this whole episode. And Dmitry Kozlyev, of course, explains that, uh, quote, let me emphasize that we cannot state unequivocally that Maria V is the real Maria Voronsova, Vladimir Putin's daughter, but circumstantial evidence and two sources indicate that she is. In this case, we are able to imagine what someone in the president's closest family environment thinks about the events unfolding today. If this really is Maria Voronsova, it seems Putin's younger relatives share his worldview. And that means there are fewer reasons to expect opposition within Putin's inner circle. And it means it is generally pointless to try to appeal to Maria with pleas to influence her father and stop the war, as activists have tried to do so in demonstrations outside her ex-husband's home in Europe. So here we go. 
We have the illusionary world in which Russia's inner circle lives in. We have the world of the ultra-wealthy and ultra-powerful. And then we have the world of the boots on the ground. And I think, I think that we can draw some conclusions here and kind of realize that these are two different worlds and two different perspectives. And yeah, what really struck me is that I looked at both of these studies at the same time and I found them really interesting. And I hope that you did too. And of course, we will continue the Soldier's Diary once the rest of the other three parts are finished. And I'll figure out where they're going to go. But yeah, I hope that this was a kind of a, a bit of a philosophical introduction between all the news episodes. And uh, I hope that, you know, it, it kind of helps understand the whole picture, you know, so that we wouldn't have just dry news. We have actually some people added to it. I'll get some Ukrainian stories as well, of course, because, you know, I've dedicated my time and energy to telling the Russian part of all the situation. But, you know, it'll just be fair if I'll grab some Ukrainian guys and planning to get some interviews. I'm gonna call up Aristovich, maybe, but depending on his English knowledge, that is. At any rate, thank you for listening. Do свидания, товарищи. Oh, and of course, please, please. I've already mentioned my Patreon. You can go and click on the, the button on my Twitter page, which we're trying to kind of increase there. We want to get to 20,000 followers, so please, you know, follow us at Eastern underscore Border. And, um, and just stay healthy, and remember, happiness is mandatory. Thank you for listening to The Eastern Border Show. If you have any questions or comments, go to our website, theeasternborder.lv, and leave a comment there. Or email us at theeasternborder at gmail.com. We'll be sure to answer. You can also follow us on social media and contact us there. If you enjoyed this episode, then leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and tell your friends about us. It really helps us grow the show. And remember, happiness is mandatory. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.